לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס.
the Exodus doesn't mean anything until you get to Mount Sinai. That that is to say, you know, that there's um, two kinds of liberty in the world. There's positive liberty and negative liberty. Negative liberty, you should be free from interference. Positive liberty, you should be free to pursue your your meaning, your life, your what you think about the world, what you what you you know what your purpose and destiny is, and the at best you know Exodus mi Adim from the house of bondage, while significant and important, uh, is is negative liberty. You know the Egyptians should stop enslaving you; they should stop enslaving you. But it's at Sinai that you get something much grander, which is to be mablechet kohanim v'goy kadosh. You you enter into a covenant that's about that is forward looking, that is that is purposeful. That you should proceed, you should uh, aspire to be uh, a, a, a holy nation and a kingdom of mamlechet kohanim. We say a kingdom of priests. We often say something like that. But I think in keeping with what you just said. Uh, it's the it's the passage from being avadim to Pharaoh to being avdei Hashem to being servants of God. Like to be a, a slave to Pharaoh is degrading. To be a servant to God is to, is is ennobling, and that's what mamlechet kohanim. The kohanim there are uh, probably a better translation than kingdom of priests. The kingdom of servants, a kingdom of people who will who will uh, serve the Lord. And so that's why this you know religion is. Um, it's so moving, at least at least to those of us who love it. You know, well, let me let me just elaborate because the 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 Mamlahat Koanim passage occurs in in chapter nineteen, right before the 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 Decalogue, um, and um, one interpretation, not only the, you know exactly as you said, but but it it's not only to serve God, but it's it's to serve humanity. Mamlahat Koanim, the Kohen functions to the Jewish. The Kohen, our, in our in our religion, Kohanim, that is in biblical religion, Kohanim served simultaneously God and served the people. And if we are a Kohen, we are a Kohen to God and we are a Kohen to the world. So there's there seems to be a, a kind of analogy here that just as Kohanim served the people, the Jewish people or the people of Israel serves the world. And that koanim is really agency. That that there's an agency, um, in the broadest sense, to to be the vessel of God's name into the world, to bring God into the world, to bring God's name into the world with all uh, of the implications that uh, that has, um, and the responsibilities, you know. And um, we we were saying just as we were having our pre conversation that you know. Th I mean, on the one hand, to have the Ten Commandments um, is this great privilege, and it's a and it's a great responsibility. Um, it leads to so many different uh, rabbinic interpretations. Uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar. Maybe our, our viewers, listeners, are familiar with the the one that God is shopping around. God shops around the Ten Commandments, the Torah. To see, and this one can't have it, you know, because they murder. This one can't have it because they steal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then finally, God turns to the people of Israel and says, "Do you want the Torah?" And they say, "Naseh Benishma will take it." And you know, there's, there's the anti-Semitic joke about that. That is sure. You know, you ask the whatever the Ammonites, what's in it? No murder. No, thank you. What's you ask the 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 Girgashites, what's in it? No stealing. No, thank you. They ask, you know, the whoeverites, what's in it? No adultery. No, thank you. And this is the anti-Semitic joke. What can I tell you? 
And they asked the Jews, he said, how much does it cost? He says, they're free. He says, we'll take 10. We'll take 10. <laughs> so what I would like to suggest is that the significance of the opening is sometimes lost, even though the countertext to it are the what we call the first three commandments. So God declares himself as the one who brought us out of Egypt, and the next set of commandments is telling the people, you're never going back, that you're not going to do all those things that were characteristic of Egyptian life. And the proper beginning of the Ten Commandments, I'd like to suggest, is what we would identify as commandment number three. That you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, because I will not acquit or justify anyone who does so. And this is a commandment to not trivialize the relationship with God, that the the problem, so to speak, with holiness is that it tends to be undermined by what we call the profane or the secular. And here is an insistence that God remain holy in the eyes of the people. The rest of the Ten Commandments, then beginning with the commandment about Shabbat, including the famous negative commandments proscribing our behavior, it's kind of like a bar mitzvah charge. You know, instead of a fountain pen, we get the set of instructions, this is how you're going to go live now. I've established my relationship with you, and this is what you need to do to keep it. I, I like the, um, you know, the established, my relationship with you. We, we were talking before we started recording, and maybe maybe some more of these will emerge in the course of our conversation, uh, about some midrashim about about these about the, the the experience of revelation or the scene, um, the content, and, and one of the in in the mechilta which we're talking about is the Mishnaic era uh, exposition of Exodus it goes from the beginning of the commandments portion in, in Exodus twelve it goes pretty much verse by verse and tells you the legal meaning, um, and one of the questions that it asks is why didn't Adam get the Ten Commandments if this is the if this is the core of uh, human religiosity. I mean, we do have a tradition in, in rabbinics that Adam and Noah, we usually call it the Noahide commandments, although the, the rabbinic literature also will will kick that one back a few generations to Adam, um, that, that there's like some basic, almost, you know, something like you'd consider a natural law, just a basic fundament of, of appropriate human behavior. And the, uh, so the Midrash, I think, I think is asking, you know, kind of between the lines, a profound question about the relationship between universal values and particular values, a particular culture with what it privileges and what, what it cares about, and universal things which are just common to all humanity or should be common to all humanity. And and the answer that the that the Midrash gives, which, you know, we can you can like or not like, that's how Midrash works, is, you know, no, it's it, I had to just I had to have established the relationship. I had to have done things for you. It's like the king who shows up in the town and says, I'm going to build the wall and I'm going to build the irrigation system and I'm going to bring in the water from the spring. And then and then I'll give you some mitzvot. And then you'll have to say, well, you know, the king did build the wall and did did irrigate the fields and did provide the drinking water. So I guess it behooves us to follow. And that, that Midrash is trying to say something similar here that that the thought that we would enter into a relationship, this covenantal relationship with God, is because we have already experienced some providential care 
in the liberation from Egypt. And that's great. I don't personally, I'm not sure that I, I think I think in that 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 midrash explains the text why it's I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, not I'm the Lord your God who, who created the world. Um it, it it sort of explains a cultural perspective. I'm not sure that it's the most theologically satisfying to me. Um I think the Ten Commandments, you know, they do have this ring of a of a kind of a universality. Uh I mean Shabbat and and no idols, th those are cultural things that other you could imagine other cultures that don't have Shabbat and that do worship plastic images. So these things are ours. But keeping, you know, keeping special things special, honoring relationships, honoring marital relationships, honoring parental relationships, no violence, no stealing, no lying. This is just like the fundament of human virtue, it seems to me. Well, I, I would I would just um, gently take issue with with uh, idolatry as cultural, I think idolatry speaks to to a um, a deep human a human need, and that the Ten Commandments, you know, all of them are are quite universal in in a sense that they all speak to what it means to be a human being. That human beings have a tendency to they, they require the concrete. They can't think in abstract terms, and that and that you know human beings tend to venerate very easily and that the object of veneration when it's not god uh can be quite quite detrimental to to all of civilization and likewise i would say you know shabbat i mean you know the, the shabbat commandment is um is central if you if you kind of do the analysis count the words in the in the um 10 commandments it's the longest of the commandments it's um uh, it's got God's name written three times in it, and it, it. We may not say that it's the most important of the commandments. Maybe the first, the second, and third. You know, you know, they're 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 put first, but it's it's placed in the in the central location because it's it's making a statement. I like Barry what you said before that the these are commandments in a way they they do polemicize against Egypt. Uh, they're saying we're doing we're going to be everything that you're not. And Shabbat, uh, I think, is the is the fundamental undermining of of Egyptian society or a society built on human power, because so this is especially true when you this is especially true when you look at the one commandment that really differs from the Exodus version and the Deuteronomy. Exactly, version. exactly. And so it's important, I think, to point out that because of the comparison with Devarim, that Shabbat here is understood to be a universal thing because the justification for it is that it goes back to the creation of the world, which we can understand was intended for, the world was intended for everyone, not just for the Israelites and their Jewish uh, descendants. Yeah. Um, but there was one other point to be made here. Explain um, the Deuteronomy one as long as we're here. Oh, and in Deuteronomy, the justification is that we're slaves in Egypt, which is a particular point. The other thing I think is worth pointing out is that this is the commandment in which we're most like God. Again, hearkening back to the creation story, God rested on the seventh day. And now here in Exodus, we're commanded to rest on the seventh day, just like God did. So this commandment, unlike all the others, is how we are most in the image of God, and I think that adds to why you think it's so central, Elliot. Yeah, I want to. I want to just pivot now. You know, we're at, we're at halfway mark, and I just want to 
ask a question as to what the role of the text of the Ten Commandments plays within Judaism and, and how central it was and how it did not necessarily retain its centrality as a liturgical um, piece of text. We, we don't daven the Ten Commandments. Um, and there, there is a relationship that we have with the text. I, 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 you know, anecdotally, I would say, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you ask them in the congregations, they'll say, well, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments, you know. And then you ask them, you know, what are the commandments? And, and it's embarrassing. They, they may not know them. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it, it, it's a great exercise to memorize them, of course. But um, on the other hand, if you ask them to recite the Shema, um, I think you wouldn't have any problem with a shul-going Jew to to kind of at least rattle off the first paragraph of the Shema by heart. What I'm saying is that that the text uh, of the Ten Commandments does not play a central role in shaping the imagination of the Jewish people. Not that we don't observe them. Of course, we we all aspire to observe them and to live by them. But it's the Shema that carries the emotional weight and becomes the center of liturgy. And I think that that subject really is a it's a it's a it's a useful subject to to talk about. So what I would suggest here is that it's important to um, recall that the Shema is actually part of a phrase Kriyat Shema, the recitation of the Shema. And Kriyat here means to say something out loud. That from antiquity, this was a text that was proclaimed and declaimed, the Shema, and it was important that it be said out loud. The Ten Commandments is more of a, a written text, and I think that in our iconography, we almost always associate it with those two tablets which have some writing on them, so that we a sense, again, from antiquity that it's supposed to be read. Our culture, especially since the rabbis, is an oral culture, both in terms of hearing AU and oral speaking OR. And um, the Shema is much more receptive to that kind of a culture than the Ten Commandments. And I think one way to think about it is that the Ten Commandments is kind of like the distillation of Torah Shabbat and the, the written Torah, and the Shema is the distillation of Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah. It's interesting, you know, the, the visual part of the Ten Commandments, I think, is such a fascinating topic because we do depict it. I mean, it's in every single synagogue. It's on the outside of synagogue. I don't know, Jeremy, I have it in your synagogue. I have it in my shul. I mean, it's on every single Torah. I mean, and, and you know, where did where did the um, the shape of the commandments come from? It's not It's not in the text. And the um, arrangement of the commandments, five on one side, five on the other, this is not in the text either. I mean, and and um, we're, we're so committed to that visual depiction that I think it may distort. It distorts our our sense of uh, of the text. I, I've proposed, and I think I may have said it here previously, and I every time I say this in shul, someone shoots me down for this, but is that they got two tablets because they got two copies of it. One was for Israel, one was for God. And they deposited two full copies of it, the same way that when you sign a mortgage, you know, or sign a contract, you know, you get a copy and your employer gets a, co a, a copy. And 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 both of those go in the bottom. To me, it's such a it's such a moving idea that that 
the two copies of the contract reside in the same safety deposit box in the Aron Kodesh. Mm -hmm. Okay. And not that they're two, one in one to five and six to 10. Um, it doesn't, it's lopsided that way. The, the, the numbers of words, the number of the words doesn't match. Um, and, and yeah. that distorts our, our, our sense of it. I, you know, it is written, but it is oral to us too. So, so, so I want to, uh, pick up, first of all, I, I, I mean, the, the Midrash already has the five against the five. And so the one corresponds to six and two to seven, three to eight, yeah. et cetera, which, which is great. There's great homiletical material about there, um, which I do appreciate, which means that all the way back in Mishnaic times, they already had that assumption, which I think you're reading about the uh, the two copies is ingenious. Um, uh, I'm not sure it's pshat, but it's it's quite excellent. It's, it's but um, I just want to return to that question about liturgical usage of the Ten Commandments. And as we were just sitting here, thanks to the wonders of uh, having these machines where you can look up anything at any time, I, I went back to the Talmudic passage in Tractate Brachot, page Yud Ber Amuralaf, twelve a about the uh, earliest liturgy, and they say that in the the priests they did, you know, the, the priests back in the temple, they, you know, they did they did what they they did. Korin Aseret Hadibrot Shma Vahim Shamoa Vayomer Emet Biatzi Vaavoda Ubirkat Koanim. So they read the Ten Commandments, the, the liturgy in the temple, according to this. Uh, it's the Ten Commandments, then the first two paragraphs, the first three paragraphs of the Shema, the three paragraphs of the Shema, um, the, the bracha that follows the Shema in the morning, they said the blessing that is now our uh, 16th of the blessings, uh, the Abu Da blessing, and they said Birkat HaKonim, which corresponds basically to our, I guess that's the 17th of our blessings, and then the 19th of our Amidah blessings, Birkat HaKonim and the Shema. And then you get something interesting, which is um, it relates that various sages keep saying, and we tried to reinstitute. It happens like four times in the in the story. First, in the name of Rabbi Huda Marshmuel, then the name of Rabbi Natan, who was a little bit earlier figure, Rabbi Bar Barchana, um, and Amemar all say, and we tried to reinstitute the Ten Commandments, but they have been uh, canceled. The rest, the liturgical recitation has been canceled because of the complaints of the heretics, which the commentators tend to take to mean that by privileging the Ten Commandments so much, yeah. you induced heretics to say, okay, well, like the Ten Commandments is the important part and everything else is, is a side dish. And the Ten Commandments come from God and the rest and stuff doesn't. So generally speaking, kind of diminish people's reverence for the whole Torah by, by elevating the importance of the Ten Commandments. Which, okay, to, to whatever extent you think that that, that, that is a uh, convincing you know, explanation for why they stopped re re reciting the Ten Commandments. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not true. It, it, but it is interesting that four times, three times in Babylonia, one time in Eretz Yisrael, though, according to those authorities I just mentioned, they kept wanting to reintroduce the Ten Commandments. Those people, those, those rabbis at their shuls said, let's reintroduce the Ten Commandments. And the ritual committee said, no, 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 we can't do that. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I, I just want to offer I, I, I offer one one take on it, maybe, and I'll let Barry say, 
the the Shema is emotion, I think, and the the Ten Commandments is not emotion. And and I'll pick that up later. But go ahead, Barry. So what I would suggest is that the Ten Commandments are universal, especially if we accept my reading of the Shema of the of Shabbat as being universal. And the Shema is uh, parochial, but but I, I guess I mean by that it's quintessentially Jewish. That's where we derive the commandments that mark Jews as separate from other people. Tefillin, talit, uh, mezuzah. These are things that we don't share with other peoples. They're things that, as far as I know, are uniquely Jewish. And that's why it resonates with the rabbis. And also, I suspect why it did not necessarily resonate with the people when the rabbis wanted to bring back the Ten Commandments, because what they were saying, well, if all we have is the Ten Commandments, why be Jewish? Right, and so so that that is a good way to lead into. Yeah, I think I think the the I, relationship. I want, well, before we just leave this, I wanted I want to defend Amemar and uh, and Rabbi Barachana for a second and say that I I, I want to I actually I want to say that the Ten Commandments present a picture of human virtue that you gotta have. Otherwise, like we all know the problem of it's easy to say, put on your tefillin and don't eat cheeseburgers and and maybe even, you know, give some tzedakah, but that's an insufficiently low aspiration for what a full religious personality is. And I think that these teachers who are quoted here in the Gemara, who maybe want to reinstitute the Ten Commandments, I'm going to Maybe I'm being fanciful here, but I'll be fanciful and say that they are saying, I want to shape you into people who always keep in mind these most fundamental virtues, spiritual and and ethical uh, ways of living. Not so lying, I, not trivializing relationships, not cheating on your spouse, not cheating other people. Right, but what I would say is that that's foundational, not aspirational. That's kind of like the given. This is how people are supposed to behave. And now, so we set the foundation, but we want to build a Jewish house on the foundation. So we need I, the Shema. I think, I think, I think the Shema took on a life in Judaism because it became the statement of martyrdom, at least, at least in the imagination. Well, then it took on a death, not a life. <laughs> Post Rabbi Akiva, you know, where where this is the word; these are the words that are said upon someone's death, and and uh, you can't you can't get more emotional than that. And and this is a religion. It's a religion of mind. And of course, we spend you know all this time and and our lives studying this. Um, but if you if you're in the synagogue and you're in a worship experience, and you are trying to cultivate a connection that is both a mind connection and a heart connection, um, and then you 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 say to people, well, you know, here's the buffet. The buffet consists of this text, which talks about love. And it talks about your whole heart, your soul, your everything, your wherewithal. It talks about that this should be on your heart. It talks about your obligation to transmit it to your family and to put it in your home and to live with it on your body. Okay. And here is, you know, Mount Sinai, which you were terrified from. The Jewish people were terrified at this. They only wanted Moses to, to go up yourself. Go, go. You get the commandments. You bring it down to us. This is terrifying for us, right? And they have maybe there's this. It's not an ambivalent relationship to the Ten Commandments. It's just a we're terrified by by revelation altogether. And this the Shema is about 
intimacy. The Shema is about about God as as you know. You could say God as your partner, God as your lover, God as your companion, God as your God and your parent. And 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 when it comes down to how you live, those relationship frames are going to motivate your behavior. And I think the rabbis chose for that. Other than the the the, the ten commandments, the ten. I mean, we could spend hours, you know, talking about the ten and studying the ten commandments and never exhaust it. And the midrashim are amazing and beautiful, but you can't dive in it. And and maybe that's what they're saying. We they're saying what you want to say, Jeremy, which is, I want so much to have this for people. I want and and we all have that impulse. I want my people to know this, and and their people. They need to they need to dive in something else every day. They need to have these words on their doorpost. Not not Lotirzach. <laughs> Don't murder. Well, if we had Lotirzach on our doorposts, that would be good too. I suppose, right? Okay. Lotin Af. We need to have Lotin Af on our doorposts okay. too. And 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 idolatry and Shabbat and parents. Right, <laughs> we could we could um, so so where do we take them then? You know we uh, we we do want. I mean I I feel the impulse also to to say people should know this. People should should memorize it. People should study them, and and you know I almost want to say if there was a text in Jude, in in the Torah to study, well you know do you want to say this is the te- this is the central text? It's funny you know. When, Jeremy, you and I taught these these our kids, you know, at camp. We well, we teach the Ten Commandments. But you know why? I I think it's it's funny that you that you remember that we had for years the the mission statements of the Jewish people, and we 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 used to do it like with also with Nike or Disney or Facebook. Exactly. And and the reality is that to be, and this speaks to us as as uh, North American late capitalist <laughs> people who live in a late capitalist society that we had the grant the, the very sharp recognition that it better be two words and snappy and memorable all right and, and commandments and this is not i mean low low up that's snappy and, re- and recognizable but it is true the ten commandments is much too long and and detailed and reflective to do the work of a motto or a mission statement the way that be you know blessing. be holy be holy choose life be a blessing so what what i would say is that the reason why you can't dive in the 10 commandments is because the 10 commandments are god speaking to us the shema is us speaking to god and so they're actually a kind of pointer counterpoint or we could think of them as the two foci of an ellipse where both of them are needed but each has its own domain. You, I want to uh, repeat something you said, um, which is uh, this is about the closest that we get to God in the Torah. This is this moment. I mean, this is the closest we get to God ever, as in in memory, right? This is God breaking through to humanity, which never happens again in in this way, right? God will speak to prophets. God will reveal. You know, certainly throughout the desert and other places, and God speaks to Isaiah, and God, you know, inspires them all. But um, this moment doesn't occur ever again, you know. And um, 
So, so having this moment and leaving up to this moment is um, is awesome. <laughs> it is to 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 live with the experience of art to try and imagine that. You know, we 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 will recite this uh, passage on Shabbat, and the congregation will rise as it's as it's recited to uh, honor it and to reenact it as if as if we're reenacting it even though they were they were completely terrified when this was happening they couldn't you know right well right. uh and it ends and it comes down and then of course it'll lead us to a whole set of commandments that we're going to read and study next week the and fine so, print so to the speak. fine print here we are we've reached the end of our time together uh, of course, I want to thank you for watching, uh, everyone who's been watching and listening to us. Thank you for being devoted followers of the Parsha Talk. We're in, you know, we're, we have a couple hundred people uh, that uh, make us part of their weekly routine, and we so appreciate that. And we love your comments. And we, uh, of course, want to end with praying again for the hostages, for the idea for Israel, for the Jewish people. And we see Shalom, and we have Sheket first, and uh, in the weeks and the days ahead uh, bring the sorrow to our strength. Shabbat Shalom everyone. Thanks for watching.